0: One of the questions I often have posed to me is, how can I be sure I'm really saved? How can I be assured of my salvation? How can I know I'm really a Christian? And this is is one of those questions that it's essential for us as believers to be able to, to think about clearly. Because if, if this issue is not settled in our heart, our whole life is out of whack. Because if, if, if you're wondering always whether you're right with God or not right with God and everything that you're doing is seen through that lens of does he love me, does he love me not, those kinds of things, it doesn't matter if you've got a career that's great, a house that's great, money, friends, all that kind of stuff. If that's not settled in your heart, you are going to be prone to being consumed with fear and anxiety, weakness, spiritually, instability, to all sorts of attacks. So this morning as we come to the book of 2 Peter, we're going to consider this very idea straight out of 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please come with me to the book of 2 Peter Chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, it will help you to grab one that's provided for you there in the pew rack right in front of you. We're on ten eighteen. Second Peter chapter one. Again the context of this letter is that Peter the Apostle is in a Roman prison preparing to be executed, and he sends this final letter to churches encouraging them, as we see in chapter three, eighteen, to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, because he knows that persecution is going to come against them, and also false prophets. And really, when you read through Second Peter, if you've been spending time in there, you know in chapter 2 that the focus, really, of the book is, is on this issue of, of false teachers who come to deceive and to lure people away from the truth and toward destruction, here in Second Peter, these, these false prophets were promising a secret knowledge that if you had this, which only they could give, you'd become super spiritual and be above morality and all other sorts of things like that. And what Peter does here is he comes and he battles those lies by 14 times reminding us of the kind of knowledge that you really need to have, which was a play on their thing, because their thing was like, oh, we're going to give you super knowledge, and Peter's like, no, 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 I'm going to give you true knowledge. And what he does is in chapters 1 and 3, he sandwiches chapter 2 with with these these truths of things you've got to know. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, he says, you've got to know about salvation and your security in it. You've got to know about salvation and your security in it. And then in the second half of chapter 1, he says, you've got to know about the scriptures and the certainty of them. You've got to know about the scriptures and the certainty of them. And then in chapter 3, he talks about... The fact that Christ is going to return, and you can have confidence in that. That Christ is going to return, you can have confidence in that. And all of those truths there, he wraps around the presentation of the false teachers to say, listen, these truths are going to guard you. This true knowledge is going to to hold you fast in the midst of all of the things that are going to try to lure you away. So in chapter 1, what we've seen so far in verses 1 and 2 is the source of our salvation is Jesus. Verses 3 and 4, the sufficiency of our salvation, that God gives all things through his divine power that we need for life and godliness. And then last week we looked at the striving that's required by our salvation. That Though we're saved by faith, we strive in faith by grace to add to our faith Christ-like qualities. If you look there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. All of those are Christ-like qualities that that God produces in the midst of our, our sanctification. So so faith is the ground in which these flowers of godliness grow. And those flowers, as it were, the good works, the fruit, they bring glory to God and they bring assurance to God's people. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at verses 8 through 11 and the certainty of our salvation. Would you follow along here as I read verses 8 through 11? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Those qualities he just mentioned in verses 5 through 7. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... And sisters, it means brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the main idea I want us to think about this morning is this. That God's people have assurance of salvation by considering Christ and considering the fruit Christ produces in us. God's people have assurance of salvation by considering Christ and considering the the fruit that Christ produces in us. Now, before we get into this text and walk through verses 8 through 11 a little more closely, we need to get a framework Uh, for what we're going to be talking about this morning. So I want to define a couple terms for you that I'm going to use that I, I hope this will help you. So first we're going to talk about being saved, about salvation. What it means to be saved is this. The Bible is very clear that people are created by God, that this is God's world, that he made us to know him and love him and worship him in all areas of our life. But the fact is that we've turned away from God and said, God, I don't want you to rule over me, but I want me to rule over me. I want to do what I want to do. We all do that in different ways, it looks differently, but all of us have that heart posture towards God of rebellion. And because God's a good God, He judges evil, all evil, including my evil and your evil. And because He is the eternal perfect being, there is an eternal punishment that comes for rebelling against God, which is hell. But in God's great mercy, he sent his son Jesus, who came and did the exact opposite of what we do. He lived a life that did honor and obey God the Father in all things, though he was God the Son. And then he willingly went to the cross, and there he suffered and died and took the judgment for sinners like us, what we deserved. He took upon himself. He was then buried for three days. And after three days, he did what nobody else does. After three days in the grave, he came out of the grave. He raised from the dead... And now he promises that anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ, who will say, I no longer want to rule my life, I no longer want anything else to rule my life but Jesus, that they will be born again, that they are born again, that they are forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God, and then he gives us his spirit to now give us strength to live. So when I talk about being saved, I'm talking about Stop sinning and trusting in yourself and trusting in God and being delivered and forgiven and made right with God. From that, the next word we need to understand is the word security. Security. Security is a promise that God will keep those he saves forever. The Bible is very clear that God never loses those that he saves unto himself. John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John six forty. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a fact. It's done. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is not the sluggard in Proverbs who puts his hand in the dish but will not raise it to his mouth. When he reaches down and he saves a sinner, he holds them fast for for all of eternity. So the Bible teaches very clearly people do not lose their salvation because salvation is from the Lord. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one boasts but God. He gets all the glory. Okay, so salvation Security is the fact that God keeps those that he saved. And then, assurance. So assurance is the belief, a subjective understanding that you are saved. That Jesus died for you. It's being convinced that God called you. It's being sure that he will keep you forever. You see the difference? Security is the fact that God saves those who he calls to himself. Assurance is the understanding and belief that I'm one of those. I'm one of those that he's done that. And God wants us to have that kind of assurance. Because there is a joy and a freedom that comes. And that permeates everything that we do. That's, I mean, he doesn't want us to sing. I mean, imagine if it was not that way. We'd have to rewrite all of our songs. Right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I might be lost. I might be found. I guess we'll wait and see. You know, we'd have, to, we'd have to redo the whole thing. But that's not what we do. We rejoice in Christ that he finishes what he says he will do. So our text this morning focuses mostly on one of the ways that we have this assurance which is to examine our lives and to see, is Christ's life being produced in me? Is there fruit springing from the root? Okay? But, and that's, that's the focus of the text, but I, I want us to not misunderstand that the, that the foundational way that we understand assurance is not by looking at ourselves and our fruit. But that's important. It's a secondary way. That the primary way is by taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them upon Christ. This is where the greatest sense of assurance comes from. It's it's believing the truths that God has said about His Son. So Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So do you believe? Then you are saved. 1 John 1.9 Confess your sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you confess Jesus is Lord, the Son of God? He died for sins. He rose from the dead. He's my Lord. I trust Him. Then your sins are forgiven. You find assurance. Romans 10.13 Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, save me? I'm a rebel against you. I no longer trust myself. I trust you. Help me. Then you are saved. If you're calling upon the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. 1 John 5, 12-13. Whoever has, present tense, the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. God wants his people to be able to rest assured that they are his. But that, last, that first John verse is really important. He who has the Son presently. Great assurance comes from God, for God's people when we say, I have the Son right now. I'm trusting in him right now. Not when I was 12 at, you know, at camp and I threw my pine cone in the bonfire because I didn't want to go to hell and want them to stop screaming at me. Like, that's not what we look to and say, that's why I'm saved. Not because I prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got baptized, you know, I have a Baptist SBC tattoo on you. None of that is what saves anybody. What saves people is Jesus. And do you have the son today? Do you have him? If so, then there's assurance. I believe amazing and weird things about God that I used to mock and laugh at and scoff at. Praise be to God. That's a miracle. Primary assurance for the believer comes from pondering Christ and drinking on the promises and saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Recognizing that it's a gift that God has given you and you rejoice in that gift. Okay? So, God's people have assurance of salvation by considering Christ and considering the fruit that Christ produces in us. So faith in Christ saves us. Fruitfulness in Christ is evidence that we are saved. Fruit gives light. I'm sorry, root gives life, fruit proves life. Root gives life, fruit proves life. Now, as we're looking to Christ and drawing strength, striving to add the virtues of chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, that list that we looked at last week, which is a sampling of Christ-like characteristics, all of those things are, are that which Christ embodied fully, Because as we strive and we add these things and we see these things being produced in our life, it gives assurance. Look at verses 8 through 9. And by the way, if you're looking for points this morning, there's no points. We're just going to walk through and meditate, okay? So just just hang on, all you note-takers. Jesus still loves you, but we're going to do it a little different. Verses 8 through 9, okay? For if these qualities, verses 5 through 7 are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So after challenging us to strive toward adding the Christ-like qualities in verses 5 through 7, he now gives a promise of protection. If these qualities increasingly mark your life, you're never going to be useless or unfruitful for Jesus. Now, what does that mean, and why is that important? What that means is, let's first think about this this word ineffective. Ineffective, right? You see it there in in verse 8. This is the opposite of everything that we saw in verses 5 through 7. It's where someone, because in 5 through 7, someone is zealous and is making every effort to supplement their faith, but rather here, the word ineffective means they're, they're idle. They're lazy. They're indifferent. The same words used in Matthew chapter 20 of an unemployed person who's doing nothing said going out about the third hour he saw others standing idle in the marketplace just hanging out. Paul uses it in Titus chapter 1 quoting one of the, the, the Cretan prophets. He says one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts Same word, lazy gluttons. Lazy. And then in James chapter 2, the word is used to describe an unbeliever. Faith apart from works is useless. Someone who says they have faith but have no works, James says it's dead, and that faith is useless. It's ineffective. It's the same word. It's very interesting because all the way through here in 2 Peter Peter uses language about Christians to describe, and that's also used to describe non Christians at times. What a terrifying thought that it is possible that at times believers can live in a way that's lazy and indifferent toward the Lord, just like a non Christian. Now, I want to go ahead and say that if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, and you're just kind of checking things out, not talking wickedly about you, trying to slander you, really thankful that you're here, but want to understand, as I said a moment ago, that we are all made to know God and to live for God. And the Bible's very clear that unless we're living for God and honoring Him in everything that we do, no matter what, we're wasting our lives. So I would call you this morning to turn unto Christ and to find the purpose for which He created you, which is to worship Him and give Him glory. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to hear this word and take caution. Because there is a dangerous temptation to strive to be diligent in in business or exercise or hobbies or fashion or politics or even church stuff. With little or no time and effort devoted to loving God. To ensuring that our hearts are centered upon Him striving to add these qualities in faith by the grace that he supplies. Prayer, time in his word, discipling relationships, service done for the glory of God and the good of others. So I'd ask you this morning, how are you tempted to be lazy in your love for God and others? What does that look like in your life? Are you idle in sharing the gospel? Are you indifferent to the 7,051 unreached people groups around the globe? That's not intended to be some kind of guilt trip. This is intended for us to think is my heart set fervently and zealously on the things that God loves? Or am I ineffective? And though every Christian has seasons of laziness toward the Lord, we should never be satisfied in them, but we should be terrified by them. Because as we work through this list, you've got to realize there are some people, as we heard a moment ago from the reading in Luke, there are some people who think that they are born again, who think that they are Christians, when in fact, they're not. And their, their worklessness, their fruitlessness, their laziness testifies to that. And then there's also some of us who indeed are born again, who, who are dry right now, might be a word. As we work through, we pray that God would give discernment as to which one you are. The other word that he uses here is, is unfruitful. It's also the opposite of the verse, virtues there in verses 5 through 7, where people in, in 5 through 7 show this, this, this striving to get This fruit in their life leaning upon the Lord. God, would you produce these things in me? But instead here, it speaks of them being unproductive, barren, sterile, are the same kinds of words. It's used in Titus 3.14. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Christians are to be marked with growing love for the needy, for the oppressed, for those without, just like Christ, who displayed his love for we who were needy in our sins. And then terrifyingly, the same word is used in Matthew 13 of people who hear the gospel are just too busy with other things. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, that's the word going out. This is the one who hears the word. But cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It's a picture of someone who's had a spiritual experience. And God just said, listen, i gotta get my, I got to get my life together. I'm going to get in church. And you show up and you're like, yeah, that's some good stuff. I need to do that. I'm excited. I'm going to get a Bible. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then, and then life starts happening. There's games to watch. There's vacations to go on. There's stuff to do. There's money to be had. There's this. There's that. There's this. And the next thing you know, they've fallen away and are unfruitful. Now, I want to say this, that Christians can have seasons of unfruitfulness. Christians do have seasons of unfruitfulness. But unfruitfulness should serve as a grave warning to us. If we see this in our lives, or other people are helping us to see it in our lives, we should not find comfort in, yeah, well, I prayed a prayer. Yeah, well, I did this. Oh, yeah, well, I... Years ago, I did a bunch of stuff for Jesus, but now I'm, I'm on vacation for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's none of that. Like, there's not comfort in that. Do you have the Son today? How is that being shown today in your life? Because we need to hear this warning that comes with this. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a very real practical holiness that is evidenced in the lives of believers that proves that you are indeed born again. So when you see unfruitfulness in your life or a friend helps you to see barrenness, don't be content with it or don't be offended by them. Actually, the most loving thing that somebody can do is to come alongside you and say, hey, just want to check in and see how you're doing. I feel like things, something seems to be missing. How are are things going in your walk with the Lord? Would you say your heart's warm toward him or or cold toward him right now? What kind of fruit do you feel like he's producing in your life? Ask God to make your heart be alarmed by apathy. Apathy. If you see yourself apathetic to commands that come, if every week you're like, yeah, I should do that, but then nothing changes all week long, that should terrify you. Do not grow comfortable being in a church where there's truth taught if truth is not being, you're not striving to apply it. Do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Truth is to change us. Apply this promise. Verse 8. If these qualities, verses 5 through 7, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Do you hear that? There's a promise right here. That idleness and fruitlessness can be choked out by possessing and progressing in these Christ-like qualities. You want to choke that stuff out. How? Possessing and progressing in these Christ-like qualities. Now, he says, if these qualities are yours, it's a strong word. It means permanent possession. One translation renders it, if these are really yours. And also, it's in the present active. Active means it's something you're doing. Present means it's happening when? Now. Are you actively, right now, doing this? Not you know, I was in junior high. I used to crush it for Jesus, but, you know, I've got to not do that anymore. People do that. Like, people do that, and they find comfort in it. No. So, so the best thing, so, so try this today. There's no evening service. After community group, when you're out for lunch, take a snapshot of the last month of your life. Like, step back, pull out your Google calendar or your journal or whatever you do stuff, and, and think about the last month of your life. Pray for God to give you insight and help you to think through questions like this. Are you currently displaying kindness to cruel coworkers? Is that currently marking your life? Are you presently striving to be a peacemaker among friends and family? Is that what's marking you right now? Are you currently meditating in the knowledge of God in his word and seeking God? How can I apply that? Not just, listen, I'm, you know, it's almost the end of January and I'm, I'm behind on my Bible reading for the year, so I'm trying to just crush it and get through here. But like, am I finding truths that, that, that God wrecked my life with this, change my heart, show me how I can live this out? Are you currently cultivating self-control in what you eat? Money that you spend and time that you invest so that you can be more free and to better serve God and others? What can you point to right now that you're actively doing that in self-control? Are you presently persevering through trials trying to trust God? I had a conversation with a sister this week who is just getting, I mean, he's getting lit up right now. But I was so encouraged because as tears came down her face, she's like, I want to trust him. Like, that's fruit. She's trying to lean in. Is that marking you right now in the midst of your troubles and your persecutions? That's fruit. There's assurance in those teardrops. Presently nurturing brotherly affection for one another. Are you striving to love people? Not just get along with people and put up with people, but like, I want to I I know, know what's going on in your life. And I want you to help me with what's going on in my life. And are you presently showing love to people who can't repay you? And extending forgiveness to people who don't deserve it, as it were. Present, active. Possess these things. Do you have those? Snapshot of your life right now. Peter says, if you possess these Christ-reflecting, Spirit-supplied evidences of grace, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because that's not natural stuff. But he says, not only possessing, but also progressing. All right, These are yours and are increasing. The word here, it's an interesting word. It means to have in abundance. More than necessary. Is there more than enough evidence in your life? When people bump into you, they're like, man, I got some Holy Ghost on me. Or however, you know, I mean, like, do they, do they notice when they're around you? Not, they might be a Christian. I mean, Maybe. Was it was it Carol Glover's funeral last week. sister from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And listen, there were Christians and non-Christians up front testifying about fruit. They might not have known what words to say, but they were pointing to this woman knew her God. It was just evident. There was no denying. You get near her, you're like, oh, she's joyful. Something happened to her. That was her life. You don't have to be an extrovert to do that. She was quiet. She just loved the Lord. And when the, when the Spirit of God is in you and He's producing fruit, it comes out of you. There's something unexplainable. It evidences our union with Jesus that's unavoidable. It's, it's like... It's like trying to put a lid on a a pot that's overflowing with that eternal spring that Jesus promised he'd put in the life of his people. That's the picture. Peter's saying, if you're possessing and progressing, if you're owning and abounding in these Christ-like qualities of zeal and compassion and knowledge and love for God and love for others, you find assurance there. So I would ask, is your fruitfulness abounding? If If you've got a good friend that you you do life with, ask them that today over lunch or sometime this week. Do you see fruit in my life? Like seriously, be honest with me. If you're married, like you've got a a live-in helper, critic, whichever way it's going to go, like it's it's good. (laughs) Ask. Say, all right, I ain't going to be mad. I promise. I'll still get you something for Valentine's Day. Just tell me the truth. Am I, do you see fruit of Jesus in my life? Would others testify of you growing in Christ-likeness, generosity, sacrificial love, mercy? Does the mercy that you received, is it flowing out and abounding to others? Now, I want to remind us, we began here, but these virtues are not things that we just muster up. This is not like, you're right, I'm going to get it together and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. No, it doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. These are supernatural Just things that God is doing in your life. Hear this from John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that means trusts in him, remains near through obedience and faith. And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The fruit of our sanctification flows from the root of our justification of whom Jesus is the vine. Our union with Jesus through faith produces a heart that strives and toils and wars to cultivate Christ's likeness. So if you're possessing and progressing in these virtues, then you have this promise that they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what fruitfulness is. These virtues, it's Christ's likeness. Now there's an important a couple of important words to notice here. First, the word, the word keep. The word keep here, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. The word keep means to appoint like a guard or a steward to protect you. It's the idea of, of a gardener who oversees a plot of uh, a planted field and daily walks in and out and up and down and round and round, pulling out weeds, pulling off dead leaves, checking to make sure the fence is mended. That's what happens here as we're possessing and progressing in these qualities. Those qualities do that. And he says, this promise is ours if. Did you notice the little word if? If. It's conditional. It means that what is promised requires something from us. It demands a response of faith in God that shows itself in diligence to put away sin and to practically strive to please God according to his word. So, that means that holiness doesn't just happen. That's why last week we talked about the fact we need to strive and to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That means that there's, there's a warning here. If these Christ-like qualities are not yours and are not progressing, their absence testifies against you. And it serves as a witness that either you're not a Christian... Or, that you are in great need of repentance. Great need of confessing sin and asking God, God, will you forgive me? Help me now. And confessing that to somebody else and asking for help. And I would say that one of the serious problems of many churches today is that they are filled with people who either aren't Christians or who are very immature and being encouraged to stay that way by self-centered and self-help teaching. That encourages you to think life's actually all about you getting catered to by God. And by everybody else. Rather than that no, life is actually about giving glory to God. And yes, we are served by the gospel, but, but life is actually about glorifying Him by surrender and sacrifice and laying down our comforts and desires that others might be blessed. Now listen, we're not a perfect here at Delray, a perfect church here at Delray Baptist, but, but we want to strive to feed you with the word and plead with God to make it grow. And we encourage you to be in one another's lives and not hide and say, help me see these things. And so if you're a Christian, but are ineffective and unfruitful, we need to discern why. So, if you really are a Christian and these things are happening, why is it happening? I think verse 9 gives us some insight. It tells us the root of it all. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you notice the source of the laziness and the fruitlessness? Forgetfulness of Christ and his work. Forgetfulness of Christ and his work. It says he's so nearsighted that he's blind. The phrase here consists of, of two Greek words that paint the picture of someone failing to see something because they closed their eyes to it. You lose sight of it. There's nearsightedness. All you see is what's right in front of you. And when you look further out, the more unclear that it gets to you. So instead of, of fixing your eyes on, on Christ and our eternal home with Him forever, we get our eyes fixed on everything down here. New movies. New shows coming out, new songs, sports scores. You know, did the Patriots really deflate balls in the AFC championship game? Are stocks going to keep doing what they're doing? Our gas prices going to stay down? i got meetings all week. i got to be thinking about that even now while I'm supposed to be listening to a sermon. There's parties to go to. There's doctor's appointments. There's hobbies. There's time to relax. And while some of those things are really good things, there's a great danger that comes from getting so busy and so so distracted and stretched so thin even with necessary and good things that you forget you're a Christian have you ever done that as a believer you go through a large portion of your day and then it hits you I haven't prayed once today I haven't thought about a word from the Bible I haven't asked God for help I haven't prayed for open doors for evangelism with all these people that are making me mad. Like I'm just living like like I'm not even thinking about Jesus. I'm so nearsighted. Persisting in that grieves the Holy Spirit. And what it does is it begins to cultivate in our lives fear. If you're a Christian, it cultivates fear and anxiety and, and instability and proneness to sin. And then, when you do lift your eyes to try and see eternal things, things are so, so cloudy, they seem so far away. The Bible and all that stuff, it just it seems kind of irrelevant now, kind of unimportant to everyday life, and it begins to become a justification for, for sin. I can tell you there are times in my life as a Christian when I haven't been praying very well, and then I just say, "All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guard this time. And I shut off my phone and close my computer and lock my door and sit down before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to stay here for 30 minutes or whatever it may be, and I'm going to pray. Help me. When you're done that time, you just think, what have I been doing? This was so sweet for my soul. This is so refreshing. What in the world have I been doing for the past weeks? begin to see clearly a trail behind you of small compromises or some big ones. Let me say it to you this way. All sin begins with forgetting about Jesus and what he's done for you. All sin begins with forgetting about Jesus and what he's done for you. We close our eyes to the fact that on the cross, he purchased for us freedom from the corrupted treasures that we're chasing after. We become blind to the promises that, that God has made that, that gives us strength to resist, resist the temptation that's, that's, that's coming after us and, and just gutting us. We become short-sighted of our, our heavenly calling. We grow apathetic toward Him. Things get hazy and begin Drifting toward destruction. And this is the question that you always get is how much forgetting of Jesus and his work can somebody do before you say I don't think they're a Christian? How, How much can I do before I question if I'm really a Christian? And I think all of us anybody who's been walking with Jesus for very long has people in their lives who baffle them. They used to be Bible study leaders, used to be pastors, used to love God. I remember in the church I pastored in Texas, there was, there was a young woman who I remember thinking, she is, she just loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. She'd be somebody that would point other people to. I'd say, listen, go, she'll, she'll help you think through these issues. I mean, she knew her Bible inside and out. She, I mean, from everything that you saw on the outside, she looked like a Christian. But there was a slow fade that turned to a fast fade. And now she is way off. Not even sure if if there's a God. People would ask, is somebody like that a Christian? I don't know. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, The Lord knows those who are His. So the Lord knows those who are His. But I can tell you this, that you cannot give somebody like that assurance. You cannot give somebody like that assurance. He who has the Son has life. It doesn't matter if I baptized her or not. It doesn't matter if she was a member in our church or not. It doesn't matter if she was the best Bible study leader on the planet. It doesn't matter. Assurance comes from presently possessing the Son and exhibiting fruit in His life, in, from His life in us. Now, does that mean you can't look to the past and see all the things that God has done and be encouraged by that in the midst of hard days? Of course, it doesn't mean that. But those past gone faithfulnesses of God are intended to warm present faithfulness today that we might repent and press on toward Christ's likeness. Peter wants us to avoid these kinds of questions in our lives for the glory of God and the good of our souls. He's saying, don't be so short-sighted that you close your eyes to the treasure of your blood-bought identity. Don't ignore the imperishable inheritance stored up in heaven for you purchased by the blood of Christ. Don't dismiss the daily call to draw near. And this is where I want to encourage us a warning, okay? I want to encourage you and and me. Don't check out when you hear the gospel message. Guard yourself from saying, yeah, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times, but tell me what it means for me. Plead that God will help you to never get over the glory of the gospel message. You're in a church where you're going to hear it. I mean, everything that we do is intended to be centered around the gospel. Every scripture that we read, every prayer that we pray, every song that we sing, every sermon that we preach, we intend for the gospel to be really clear in all of it. And the reason is because the gospel isn't just for non-Christians. So if you're not a Christian here today, hear the good news that if you come unto Jesus and repent of your sins and trust in him, you will be saved. But you know what? Christians need that gospel Every day as well, to be reminded that it's not my strength, that I'm still broken and needy and weak, and I need Him, oh, but there's grace for sinners, that's all Jesus deals with, our messed up people. You see, there's a forgive, forgetfulness that is fatal to the soul, but there's a remembering that renews your strength. Second Corinthians 3:18. As we with unveiled face behold the Lord of glory, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Turn your eyes upon the Jesus of the gospel and say thank you. So when you hear it preached, say God help me to believe that. God make me love that. Give me help, Lord. An assurance of our salvation in one sense flows from being able to look at our lives And have others look at our lives and say, I see Christ's glory being formed in you. You're you're, you're messed up, you struggle, but there's there's a different degree of glory today than there was two years ago. This is another just a little word of encouragement. I remember when Jason Seville here, he said this. It's good to take your temperature every day, spiritually, but sometimes it's better to take your to not take your spiritual temperature every day, and to step back and say, where was I five years ago? What has God done in my life over the past five years? Or if you've just become a Christian, asking God to show you, what were you saved from? And help me to never forget that. But, But look and say, what progress has he done? Asking old friends, what have you seen God do in my life? That helps. But when virtues are lacking, so many questions must be asked. Why is there no fruit? Why are you only able to see the sins of other people and not your own? Why in the world will you not get rid of your TV and the internet on your phone when it's killing you with pornography? What what is that? Jesus says, cut it off. Why are you so resistant to obeying Jesus? Why, why are you thinking gossiping is okay? Why are you spending money with no eternal consideration? Why are you avoiding evangelism? Why are you neglecting prayer? Why does God's word never open and partake enough in faith and ask to be changing you? Why are you not making time for deep relationships and accountability? What is happening in your heart? When fruit's lacking, those kinds of questions are needed. Delray Baptist Church, may we never be content with allowing ourselves or each other to settle for being unfruitful. May we never be lazy for the Lord. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that we value church membership here. So church membership. It is saying, listen, I'm a believer in Christ, and I want to help you guys to heaven, and I want you to help me to heaven. I want you to help keep me accountable, and I want to help keep you accountable. I want you to help make sure that I'm not ineffective and unfruitful. I need eyes on me, and I want to help you to not be ineffective and unfruitful. That's what we pray that God will do here, that he will create a culture where we have relationships that mean something. Pray to that end, sacrifice to that end, plan to that end. Because just showing up on Sunday morning and being like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, and then going home and it not changing anything about our lives or one another's lives, in one sense, is, is wasting what God's giving us. And it's going to take sacrifice. We live in a very busy, busy place. If you need help thinking through that, the elders would be glad to help look at your schedule and think, how can we do this better? Or if you know you're in a particular season where you're like, I'm about to be just clubbed for the next three months, help me. We need to know that so we can pray particularly for you. Please. And he moves on here in verses 10 and 11, and he gives his, his summary of all of this. Therefore, brothers and sisters... The word's a delphoi. It's a warm word that means brothers and sisters. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter concludes his teaching about assurance with this challenge. To be all the more diligent. It's that same kind of word. Not the same word, but the same kind of word that we heard earlier. It means to be eager, to do your best to confirm your calling and election, to make sure that you're believers. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says very similarly, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Do not be deceived, but examine your election. He uses these two words here, calling and election. The word calling, when you see this, you've got to understand there's, there's two senses in which this word is used. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out to everyone. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And then there's a specific call. This is the call of the elect. This is the call that God's people are longing to know, yes, that really happened. It's the call of those whom God has mercifully set apart to love Jesus and to be loved by him forever. It's a call that doesn't come to the ear, but to the heart. It says, like it did to Lazarus, Come forth, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Behold Christ and believe. And we step forth in faith from the grave of our spiritual deadness and be united with Christ and walk to be conformed in his image. This, this idea of, of the elect, hear this from Romans chapter 8. It says, those whom God foreknew, that means he knew them in eternity past, that's the elect. He is also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's all the stuff we've been talking about. That's what happens in the life of a believer, that we're being conformed in the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's what happens when we were born again, he calls to us. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's the finishing of our salvation that will happen when he returns. This calling to salvation has happened to every Christian. God's Spirit has made them to believe the gospel. And how we experience that calling, it's it's really different for everybody. Some of us can't remember a day when we didn't remember hearing his voice and believing it. That From our youngest days, I was like, I just always believed. And then others of us had these radical conversions that were just like, boom, and like, yeah, I definitely had had believed lies for so long that I was aware of, and now it's this. But the good news is that you don't need some kind of radical conversion to have great assurance. What you need is Christ. You need to know that He is who He says He is, and you need to believe what He says to believe. So, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died and He rose for sinners? Do you believe Jesus is the greater Savior than you are a sinner? Do you believe in Him? Do you desire Him to forgive your sins? Well, hear this promise that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've called upon the name of the Lord, then you can rest in those promises. You confirm your calling and election by looking unto Christ and believing, saying, God, I believe this. Help my unbelief. And then we examine our lives and say, where is their fruit? And we never do that alone. We always do it in the context of community. Help me see, is there fruit? And he says here, if you practice these things, these putting on and growing of verses 5 through 7 type virtues, you will never fall. Striving after Christ by faith guards us from falling. What kind of falling is he talking about here? He's talking about falling away from Jesus. Being like those in 1 John 2, 19, who went out from us because they were not of us. Meaning they weren't Christians. That's why they left. From being, guards us from being like Judas who went out into the night and forsook Christ. Keeps us from falling like those in Hebrews 6 who once looked like believers but proved that they were not by falling away. May that not be any of us. Well, how can we be assured that it isn't? Well, you cling to Christ by faith and ensure that your lives are filled with fruit of love and praise and prayer and hatred for sin. And when you see it lacking, you cry out to God for help. And he says that by doing this, verse 11, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we not be a people who are so short-sighted that our greatest hope is not being with him forever. Plead, when you read through the New Testament, what mark them with an urgency, an urgent awareness that Jesus could come at any moment and that we could enter into his, his land where there's no more striving but a land of rest, that land where Jordan rolls in front and we walk in to our heavenly home. Is is that your great hope? How often do you think of the second coming? How often do you just meditate on Revelation 21 and 22 and the beauties of the other land, Satan's ploy is to get you to think about here, to get you so short-sighted that you forget that you've been forgiven of your sins, to harden your heart against the Lord that you might fall away. But he says, may we not be of that kind. I want to give you just a final couple comments here before we close. I want to say that if you doubt your salvation this morning, well, first let me say this. If this morning you have become aware that there are serious issues in your life, and first of all that you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, today is the day of salvation. All these promises that you have heard can be yours today if you will trust in Christ. Come unto him. It's the greatest hope that any of us have. If also you this morning... Who have long thought of yourself as a Christian, after hearing this, God has used his word to raise questions in your life as to whether or not you really are a Christian. I would encourage you not to ignore those. It is grace when God shows us our weaknesses and our sins. Talk with somebody, come and talk to the pastors, please. I also want to say this that if you doubt your salvation because you don't know the date or the time you were saved, take heart in this. Assurance does not come from a date on a calendar. It comes from Christ. There has been some awful teaching in days gone by, particularly in Southern Baptist churches, that you've got to know the time and the place and the date of your salvation and that if you do not, you are not a Christian. That is not true. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There is no requirement of God that you know the date on which you were saved. Only do you know that Christ is the Savior. Another thing is this. If you doubt your salvation because you think that your sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven, take heart in this. Jesus is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. You've got to know that. No matter where you've been or what you've done, The blood of Christ is greater than it all. He cleanses the dirtiest of sinners. In this room, there are some dark things that have happened. But Christ forgives, and he cancels your debt as far as the east is from the west. And I heard one pastor say that that when we dismiss that fact, that Jesus is a greater Savior than we are a sinner, we crown the devil king. Because he's the accuser and the liar who says that you're beyond grace. But when Jesus says, no, you're not, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he says, I call my sheep and they come, there is salvation. So you are not too far gone. I also want to say that if you desire to test and examine that you're in the faith, I want to encourage you to read through 1 John. So a good exercise this week you would be to spend some time in, in the epistle of 1 John the whole thing is written, intended that you can know that you're truly the Lord's, and he marks out quite a number of tests in there, which I decided not to include this morning for sake of time but he encouraged you to read through 1 John not by yourself, but with somebody else roommate friend, fellow member here at the church, spouse if you're married and read through and discuss the things that you see and write down questions that you have. Your pastors are here to help you. So by the way, this is one of the things we want to do as pastors. We want to help you understand the Bible. So as you're reading, if you find questions, like send emails or set up lunch appointments, we want to help you understand. We don't know everything, but we're glad to help. And then finally, when do you doubt? I want to encourage you to go back to how we began, which was to remember that our great assurance does not come from looking at ourselves. That's a secondary way, and it's important here in our text. But assurance comes from considering Christ, the one who is the anchor for our soul. Consider him to be your righteousness. Plead that before God. Listen to this from, from John Bunyan, a brother from the 1600s. In his, his story about his conversion called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he said this this is about his conversion. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. And I said, there is my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw it is not my good frame of heart that made me righteous nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse for my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed my temptations fled away and I live sweetly at peace with God. Brothers and sisters if you believe that Christ is your righteousness praise God And say it out loud. He is my righteousness. And rest in that. Because that is where assurance comes from. That peace that he just spoke of, that's what Peter wants us to have. The peace that passes understanding. To know the sureness of sins forgiven. To delight in the security of the Father's love. And to rejoice in the certainty that one day we will be with Him forever. So, brothers and sisters, may we be a people who are not ineffective and unfruitful for the Lord, but may we, by the grace of God, strive by all the grace He gives to produce fruit for His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word and pray that this morning You would use it to open our eyes and behold Christ. And that if we are far off in sin and do not know Him, that You would draw us near by Your Spirit and awaken us to see Christ as the one who took our sin and now gives his righteousness. Pray, Father, that if we are Christians who are struggling this morning, that you would would help us. You would meet us where we are and give us grace to repent and to trust in you. And that, God, you would revive our hearts. And, Father, we pray that if we're in season of fruitfulness, oh, that you you would help us to persist in that and that you would bear much fruit in our lives and receive much glory. Father, we pray that there would not be one person in here today who one day we would say, I just don't know about them anymore. God, might you guard your people for your glory. Mark this church by faithfulness and joy in the assurance of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Our final.